Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20, and is found on page 900 in your pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was, was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash, your, wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is God's word. morning. hope you'll keep your Bibles open to John chapter 13 as we begin this morning. But before we do, would you pray with me? God, we are humbled to be in your presence this morning. And it is a humbling thing because you have shown great humility in welcoming us. So we praise you this morning. As we open your word, we ask that by your spirit you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Remind us of your love for us this morning, and let us leave this place changed for having seen it more clearly. We ask these things in the name of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Just a couple days before Christmas, a few weeks ago, I read a news story about former President George H.W. Bush. Don't worry, we're not going to get political at all this morning. The story was about President Bush's decade-long sponsorship of a child in the Philippines 
through an organization called Compassion International. Apparently, President Bush had heard a musician at a Christmas concert talk to his audience about the work of organizations like Compassion International, which is mainly to provide education and nutrition programs in third world contexts, and he decided that he wanted to sign up. So he took a pamphlet and filled it out. However, unfortunately, being a former president, it wasn't quite as simple as simply filling out a pamphlet and writing a check. There were security concerns involved, and people worried that if word got out that a US president had sponsored a child in the Philippines, that the child might be put in danger. So in addition to supporting Timothy's education and nutrition, President Bush had to use a pseudonym in writing his letters, which he did often. In his first letter to this child in the Philippines, he wrote, Dear Timothy, I want to be your new pen pal. I am an old man, 77 years old, but I love kids. And though we have not met, I love you already. I live in Texas, and I will write you from time to time. Signed, G. Walker. Over the next 10 years, President Bush and Timothy exchanged many, many letters, and Timothy was able to get an education all thanks to a stranger across the globe who was actually one of the few people to have ever held the most powerful seat on the planet. And it was all kept a secret until after President Bush died just a couple months ago. And even though this isn't exactly groundbreaking news, it's not like some classified documents were suddenly uh, revealed to the nation, I found it incredibly interesting. Here's a man whose job it was to negotiate international trade agreements, to navigate military conflicts, and to represent a nation on a global stage. And yet he stops to take an interest in a little boy living in poverty on the other side of the world. There's something compelling and captivating about true humility when we see it. There's something moving about seeing someone with power and influence lay them aside to take notice of someone they might otherwise miss completely. And there is incredible power in realizing that we are the recipients of the ultimate humble affection. The book of John, up to the point that we're studying this morning in chapter 13, has been building up to a significant turning point. Throughout the book so far, John has organized the material in a specific way. Jesus has performed several signs at this point in the book, and after each one, he takes the time to look back at the sign and explain it and its significance. But now... As the end of the book begins, rather than looking backward at signs, everything is beginning to look forward to the ultimate sign that awaits. So throughout chapter 12, Jesus has signaled that he has set his eyes on what lies before him. In verse 8 of chapter 12, he tells his disciples, you shall not always have me with you. Later in chapter 12, after some Gentiles come seeking Jesus, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Throughout the book so far, Jesus' incredible power and authority have been on display. He's performed incredible and mighty signs and wonders, and now as the tone of the book shifts, we as the readers of this book are naturally expecting something incredible to take place. And apparently, all of the incredible things that have happened in this book so far are merely the preamble to what is about to take place. That pivot is completed in chapter 13, verse 1, the first verse of our passage this morning, which reads, Now before the the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows that his hour has come. He knows the path that lies ahead of him, and in love he will walk it to the end. Everything in this book has been building to this moment. And now the Word become flesh, who is the power of creation and the light of mankind, is going to move to accomplish his plans. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Clearly, something significant is about to take place. And if we, like John's original audience, had never read this book before, our expectations for what comes next would be significant and lofty. We've just seen Jesus do the impossible in this book. We've seen his divine authority revealed in this book and the power that he has to carry out all that he wills. And we've begun to grasp that Jesus is, exactly as John introduced him to us, God on earth, who is the agent of creation and the giver of life. The feeling that you get reading John 12 and 13:1 is like watching a movie build up to its climax. It's like a coach giving his team an inspiring speech in the locker room before they go out to fight for victory in the second half, or a general giving a speech to rally the troops before they go into battle. Verse 3 of our passage this morning ramps up our expectations even higher. It reads, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he, was, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. It's a reminder of everything that John has already demonstrated so far in the book. Jesus has all divine power, and everything he wills to take place will take place. We read these words, Jesus knew that his hour had come, and we're like, oh, it's about to go down. Something big is about to happen. If we didn't know the end of the story, we might be caught completely by surprise by what comes next. Jesus doesn't draw a sword or a battle plan. In verse 4, it says, he instead laid aside his outer garments and tied a towel around his waist to wash the feet of his disciples. It's a stunning subversion of our expectations. Jesus' demonstration of humility in this passage is exactly the opposite of what we, in our fallen state, would have done. Our natural human tendency is to achieve status in order to be served by other people, to rise through the ranks so that we don't have to do the menial or the lowly work of our subordinates. Jesus does not do what we expect someone with his status to do. Instead, he demonstrates incredible humility by laying aside his status to serve those who are beneath him. We see in these verses the humble love of Jesus that it is criti critical and crucial because it is both essential and exemplary. We need it, and we are shown how to embody it toward others. It's difficult to overstate the significance of Jesus' actions in this passage. It's hard from our you know, 21st century perspective to really get into the mindset of this scene, but John describes it very, very simply for us, stating only that Jesus rose from the table, removed his outer garments, tied a towel around his waist, and began to wash their feet. He puts on the uniform of a servant to perform the work 
of a servant. But not just any servant. The work of foot washing was reserved for specific people in Jewish homes. In a society where people wore sandals every day and walked on dusty roads all day long, it's easy to imagine why this was not a sought-after household chore. It was important for obvious reasons, but not something that anybody wanted to do. In fact, it was such a lowly, demeaning work that Jewish servants in Jewish households weren't even subjected to it. Only Gentile servants, or those considered less respectable, were given this task. On certain occasions, in order to show great, great respect and affection for peers, those on the same level of the social hierarchy, one might wash another's feet, but a superior would never, ever, under any circumstances, be expected to demean himself in this way. It is not only an act of service, but a humiliating one for someone of high status to wash the feet of those with lower social standing. It's the sort of thing that would have been shocking, perhaps even offensive, to the early readers of the book of John. Peter's reaction would have made perfect sense to them. Yet, Jesus, who has been demonstrated throughout this book to be superior in every way, glorious and divine, subjects himself in this way. Even within this passage itself, we have the reminder in verse 3 of that, uh, of that uh, significant juxtaposition, right? It's, John reminds us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, was the one who washed their feet. Jesus is the one who deserves to be served. He's the only one in the room who could rightly insist on being honored since he is matchless among all people. But instead, he laid aside his outer garments and tied a towel around his waist to serve them. It's an incredible juxtaposition and one that stuns readers and clearly stunned Peter. I love Peter, and I think I love Peter because I associate with Peter. We're both the sort of people who speak first and then think later. And in what was very clearly and evidently a very solemn scene in which the other disciples sit in silence. As the Messiah humbles himself in this powerful way, he approaches Peter, who breaks the silence. Lord, do you wash my feet? He's saying, I should be doing this for you. He's thinking in human categories, and he can't imagine why in the world this is unfolding why this is taking place at all. He is rightly pointing to the, to the fact that this is not right, that this is a dishonor for Jesus to be serving in this way, and the whole thing is completely upside down. He should not be doing the work of a certain servant, let alone the lowest task in the house. Jesus confirms what is often true of the disciples and Peter, especially in verse 7, when he says, what I am doing you do not understand now but afterward you will understand. And this probably confused Peter even more, because right now he cannot comprehend the significance of what is happening. He has no idea what awaits Jesus and the degree to which he is willing to humble himself for Peter's sake. And so in his lack of understanding, Peter says in classic Peter fashion, you shall never wash my feet. It's a direct, 
and blunt statement. This will never be. Jesus would have been justified if he had said, Peter, can't you see I'm making a point? I'm, this is an illustration. Shut your pie hole. Give me your foot. But instead, he says in love, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. There can be no relationship between Peter and Jesus without the humble love that he demonstrates in John 13. Jesus knew what Peter could not possibly understand yet. And in love, he says, this is how it must be. When Jesus says, you shall have no share with me, he's using the language of inheritance. He's talking about being brought into his family and given the status as children of God. And that cannot happen without the cleansing that comes from Christ, in which he steps down off of his throne for the sake of his love for the people who are his own. Though he is the glorious, eternal Son of the Father, Jesus' love for his own is so complete that he who made the world and holds it together humbles himself and takes the form of a servant for their sake. Peter thinks that he understands now the degree to which Jesus was willing to step off his throne. He is shocked by it. But Jesus' willingness to wash the feet of his disciples is not half as shocking as what he is prepared to do. Peter's desire to honor Jesus and to spare him the shame uh, in this scene is an admirable desire, but he is misunderstanding Jesus' mission. The implication that Peter makes by refusing or attempting to refuse this humble love of Jesus is that for those who are true followers of Jesus Christ, who honor him truly with their lives, will spare him the shame that he is willing to endure for their sake. They say by their actions, I will cleanse myself, or I will do so on my terms, and my willingness to cleanse myself is better. And even though we look at Peter in this scene and we laugh at his tendency to put his foot in his mouth, we should acknowledge that there is more of his perspective in us than we realize. Our natural tendency is to approach God on the basis of our merit, dictating the terms of our relationship with him, and then expecting him to be impressed with us. We do that because we often don't comprehend what Peter didn't comprehend, that sin is real, that it must be dealt with, and that it cannot be overcome by our attempts to honor God on our terms or in our way. It cannot be vanquished by a strong desire to honor God, even if that desire is genuine and rightly motivated. Cleansing from sin can only come from the humble love of the Son, in which he steps further down from glory than Peter or any of us can comprehend. Jesus' humble love demonstrated in the sign of washing his disciples' feet is a sign that looks forward to the humility of Christ that will come less than 24 hours after this scene takes place. And without the humble love of Christ, who accepts the shame and disgrace of the cross, there can be no share with him, no adoption as sons and daughters, no rescue from his wrath. The humble love of Jesus is essential. It's necessary. There is no life without it, no hope without it. 
And Jesus points to this in Mark chapter 10 when he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is Jesus' humble love that is the ransom, the price that he is willing to pay to redeem his people and to love them to the end. So, Peter, in classic Peter mode, says, well then, not just my feet, but my hands and my head also. In verse 9, he still does not comprehend what Jesus is offering him. Peter's thinking about this like I think about pie. If a little is good, a lot must be better. Well, yeah, okay, I, fine, wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, will you wash my car, Jesus? Let's, let's do the whole thing. He's still confused. And the implication he makes here is equally dangerous and one that we are equally likely to imitate. The idea is that there is something more, something else that is required in addition to Christ's humble love. As if Jesus says, I'll wash your feet, but the rest of you is still a mess, and you've got some work to do. And Peter says, well, let's just knock this whole thing out right now. Jesus, who is patient with Peter, this confused disciple, still doesn't tell him to pipe down. Instead, he says in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are completely clean. Jesus is making an illustration inside of his illustration to explain his illustration. It's illustration inception. But in the ancient world, foot washing was a big deal because people didn't bathe every day, but they did have sick, nasty feet, and so they said, well, we're just going to wash what's essential to wash. That was the continual, most pressing, ongoing need. The rest of them was fine. And Jesus points to that common knowledge in the ancient world to explain what's happening here. He wants Peter to know that the cleansing he offers is sufficient. It is enough. He is clean, already in the present, finished. But he must continually rely on the work of Christ on his behalf. Peter is to abide in the cleansing that Christ offers, to remain in it and live according to it, to continue to depend on it and look to it for the hope of his salvation. He, along with most of the other people in the room, are already cleansed, already washed, I know that because one of the words in your Bible is unfortunately mistranslated. I hate to say that to you this morning, to, to say that there's something wrong in your Bible, but it's true. There's an error in the translation of your Bible. When Jesus says, and you are clean, what he actually said was, y'all are clean. <laughs> yeah, you don't see that, right, in English, unfortunately. It's very important. And a reason why I think, you know, we should just, that should be what it says in our Bibles. Y'all are clean. They already are. They have been cleansed by the humble love of Christ. He is going to the cross for them, and he has called them to his household and his family. They do not need, and we do not need anything more than the love of Christ. The redemptive life, death, and resurrection of Christ is enough. This humble love which motivated and enabled Christ, according to Philippians 2, to, well, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was his humility that enabled and empowered him to step off of his throne and out of glory, to put on human flesh and to be born into the world that he made. But not simply to come into the world, but also to endure it. He willingly took the form of a servant, accepting the dishonor that would come with that status. One of the beautiful, moving, powerful layers to this passage is revealed in the observation that Judas's betrayal is mentioned three times. In verse 2, as John is setting the scene for what's about to unfold, he tells his readers that all of this took place during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Then, as Jesus is correcting Peter's misunderstanding about the foot washing illustration, he says, y'all are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And then in verses 17 and 18, as he's telling them, blessed are you if you love people this way, but not all of you, for I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Three times in this passage, we are reminded about Judas's betrayal. It is not subtle. We are supposed to notice that Judas is in the room. In fact, in the very next paragraph in the book of John, Judas will leave to betray Jesus and start in motion the events that will lead to Jesus' crucifixion. None of this is a surprise to Jesus. He knows already of the selfishness of Judas's heart. He's known it from the start. In chapter 6, we learn that Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And at the end of chapter 6, Jesus says to his disciples, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And in chapter 13, on the very night that Judas will betray Jesus, they are gathered for a meal together in Jerusalem. And when Jesus put on the garments of the lowest servant in the house, the one with the lowest status in society, to demonstrate his love for them, he does not exclude Judas from having his feet washed. It's incredible and significant. Evidently, there is no bottom to the well of Jesus' humility. He even serves those who will turn against him. He demonstrates the degree to which he means it when he says, love your enemies, not just put up with them, but sacrifice your status and your rights for them. But we also learn that when Jesus tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, in verse 8, he was not establishing some sort of rite or ceremony through which Jesus' followers are cleansed of sin. There is no magic in the foot washing that will save the disciples or anyone else. Judas received the same cleansing, the same foot washing as the others, yet he was very clearly lost. So what's the difference? Jesus knows whom he has chosen, according to verse 18, and those he has chosen will see through this example. They will see through this sign of humility to the ultimate humility of the cross, and they will receive that grace by faith. 
Just as there is no magic in baptism, there is no magic in the Lord's table, which we gathered around this morning, there is no magic in this foot washing. But it is a powerful demonstration of the complete, humble love of Christ that cleanses his people of their sin and gives them new life in his name. It was his humility that enabled him to endure the shame and the scorn of his crucifixion, the dishonor of the death that he would die in our place, the wages of a sinner's life, though he himself had no sin. The humble love of Christ is essential. There is no life without it, no rescue or redemption. We could not earn it. We never could. We receive it by faith, and the longer we reflect on the infinite humility of Christ, the more we will be moved to gospel-motivated worship. There is nothing we need more and nothing more that we need. However, the humble love of Christ is not simply sufficient, though it is certainly that. It is also exemplary. He calls his followers to follow in his footsteps of humble service. After washing their feet, Jesus resumed his place of honor. He put on his outer garments in verse 12 and resumed his place at the table and then asked them if they understood what had just taken place. This is the third time that Jesus has mentioned understanding, understanding this sign. And though they don't get it yet, he wants them to think about this moment later and to grasp what's taken place. They might have contemplated that Jesus was humbling himself for their sake. They might have grasped that. In fact, they may grasp that even now. He did say earlier, afterward you will understand. So after his death and resurrection, they would have been able, they were able to look back at this moment and recognize Jesus was demonstrating his humble love for them in a powerful but simple illustration. But at this point, if Peter is any indication, they do not understand. And so Jesus doesn't wait for them to answer his question. There's more to what's taken place than an illustration of his love for them. He says in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It seems that the main reason behind this illustration of foot washing was to show them how to love one another well. He tells them in verse 16, I have given you an example. Those whom Jesus has called, who have been cleansed by his humble love, will embody that humble love toward others. It looks back on the cross the same way that Jesus' humble love in washing their feet anticipated the cross. We are called to love one another because we have been loved by Christ. And if Jesus was willing to humble himself in this way, then we should expect to follow in his footsteps. Jesus explains by saying they are right to call him teacher and Lord, and that they, his students and subjects, are not greater than their master. Truly, truly, a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. So why should the messenger, why, why should the messenger expect more honor than the one who sent him? Jesus is about to send 11 of these people into the world to share and exemplify his love, and they are not greater than he, the one who is sending them. And as he sends them, he, is, he himself is moving in the world, which we see and grasp and rejoice in from verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. As Jesus sends his disciples and his church into the world, it is as a conduit 
of his own humble love and the love of the Father. Those who are sent should not expect a greater or higher honor than the one who sent them. Jesus knows that he will be betrayed this very night, that his time with those whom he has called to lead and build up his church is short, that his hour has come, so he doesn't mess around. I'm sending you in the world, to, into the world in my name, and you've been called to carry my humble love to those I bring near to you, period. Full stop. That's the command. There are no exceptions, no caveats. The only command from Christ is this to those whom he has chosen. On the night before my very first day working at a church, any church, my boss, the lead pastor of that church, called me and told me to bring work clothes with me to the office the next day because he needed help with something. So when I arrived at the office the next morning for my very first day working at a church, I didn't really know what to expect, um, but we wound up spending most of that day, about six hours or so, underneath the house that was near to the church because apparently there had been a leak in the pipe under the kitchen sink and it had flooded the crawl space under the house and we spent um, six hours or so in the mud that you make with kitchen sink water in the crawl space under a house locating and fixing this leak. I think he was uh, testing me, right? I think he was trying to find out what my breaking point was. But I think he was also teaching me something important. One aspect of working in ministry is that people, for better or worse, ascribe a certain status to pastors. People, for better or worse, look up to pastors. They ask for advice and counsel. People put pastors on a pedestal sometimes, whether or not they deserve it. And that can go to your head. And the issue here is that often pastors begin to put themselves on a pedestal. It was an important lesson for me to learn on my very first day in ministry. If Jesus was willing to humble himself out of love for people, even people who would, who would reject him, then I, as one who he has sent, have been called to embody that humility also. The sort of humility, humility that crawls under a house to fix a pipe. I will never be above that sort of love. My status, whatever it may be, will not exempt me from the sort of love that steps off its pedestal and puts on the clothes of a servant. That is the example that Christ gave his disciples and to all of those whom he has called into his household. The Christian life is characterized by this sort of humble love. In our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our churches, we've been called to embody this humility for the sake of being a conduit of God's love. If you're a manager or a supervisor, a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a board member, if you are in a position of leadership, if you're a spouse or a coach or a director, you have been called to leverage your status for the sake of demonstrating Christ's humble love. I'm not going to give you a bunch of examples about what that might look like. I can promise you this morning that if you begin to pray that the Lord would give you wisdom about how you might demonstrate humility in your life, he will show you. You may be thinking this morning, that sounds rough, but luckily for me, I'm not in a position of really very much status in my workplace or in my home. Maybe you were recently laid off, or you're single, or you're 10 years old, and you're thinking, what status do I have in a particular situation? 
But that is not the way that Jesus instructs his disciples, many of whom were laborers, largely uneducated or without much influence in society, and yet he gives them this instruction. They will all be put in situations in which they could insist on their rights or what they believe that they deserve. They could expect the service of others or abuse the status or the authority that he will give them. Before declaring his mission to serve as a ransom for many in Mark 10, a passage we referenced a few minutes ago, Jesus had been approached by James and John who wanted to sit at his right hand and his left in glory. They wanted status. They wanted prestige and honor. They wanted to be looked up to. And Jesus says that that is the behavior of those who simply do not understand him or his mission. He did not come to gain honor for himself or to lord his authority over his subjects. He came as one who is already glorious to become the slave of all, to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. His life is the example of the mission that he sends his people to carry out. He wants his disciples and each of us to remember his humble love, which he showed even to the one who betrayed him that very night. His instruction to them and to us is unchanging, regardless of our circumstances in life. His instruction will never change. That command will never change. The only thing that will change is the degree to which we are amazed by his humility. The more that we grow in our faith, the more that we will grasp the depth of Christ's humility. We will grow in our understanding of his glory and the words of Colossians 1, which tell us that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We will revel in the truth and the weight of that declaration, and in sight of that ultimate holiness, we will recognize our status more clearly. When we come face to face with Christ and our grasp of his glory deepens, it will be easier and easier to let go of our status and put on the uniform of a servant. And as that understanding grows, so will our capacity for humble love toward others. The more that we realize and rejoice in the magnitude of Christ's humility in stepping off of his throne and taking the form of a servant, the more that we will be able to do the same. There's something compelling and captivating about true humility when we see it. There's something moving about seeing someone with power and influence lay it aside to take notice of someone they might otherwise miss completely. And there is incredible power in realizing that we are the recipients of the ultimate humble love. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful to be in your presence this morning, and we know, we know that we have only been welcomed here because you stepped out of glory and off of your throne. Remind us of that this morning. Remind us that your humble love is essential, that it is necessary for us to know you, to have a share with you, and remind us that it is exemplary, that you have shown us how to be humble and show humble love to those whom you bring near. We're grateful this morning for your son, for the example that he is to us. And we lift these things up to you in his name.